Guys, well, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new to the church, welcome. Uh, we are in a series right now in the book of Galatians in the New Testament. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you uh, know where that is, kind of latter third of, of the Bible, it goes Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, kind of for, for bearings there with other books. Uh, but a lot of us will be on screen too, as I usually have it. So feel free just to follow along on screen if you would like to. But it's kind of nice to have this open in context uh, as we'll be jumping around a little bit uh, in the Galatians 3 area. So today's uh, passage is Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. I'll address this question, why then the law? Uh, because the Bible actually asks it. It's, it's a, a direct pull from uh, verse, uh, I think it's verse 19 or, or 20, uh, right in the middle of that passage. So we'll talk about that in a second. But if you're new to the book or the Bible, uh, I'm going to remind you guys or tell you for the first time what the issue or the occasion was in the churches in Galatia, which was a region, a geographical region, North of Galilee, where Jesus grew up and ministered, and north of the Judean region, which is where Jerusalem is, uh, which is where Jesus died and rose again. The book was written in the late 40s AD by a man named Paul, uh, the apostle, which means sent one, the apostle Paul, who was a, a Jewish Christian, converted as well his stories in Acts 9 of how he was relentlessly trying to pursue and kill Christians, and God interrupted that and converted him and revealed himself to him, and Paul was saved, and Paul became this Christian apostle uh, to preach the faith that he was once trying to destroy, as it, as it uh, talked about, Paul talks about in those terms in chapter 2. So part of the book is just about his story as well. And again, seeing crossover intersection points like we talked about with Laura, seeing crossover points that we have with Paul's story as well. We spent a lot of time on that the first couple of weeks uh, to remind you guys or just let you, let you know that, fill you in if you weren't here for that. But the occasion in Galatia with these churches that Paul helped to plant not long before he's writing this letter, a couple of years at most, maybe less, maybe about a year before he writes this letter, is that there's false teaching infiltrating the churches. There's false teachers and false teaching infiltrating the churches that, that uh, conflicts with and contradicts, is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing that they heard originally as Christians, Jews and Gentiles in Galatia, mostly Gentiles or non-Jews, they heard that Jesus is alive. They heard that he died for their sins. They put their faith and trust in that, and they were saved. But they're hearing false teaching now, and Paul's not surprised that there's false teaching. He's shocked and surprised that they're listening to it, that they're so quick to, to forget what they formerly knew and, and give themselves over to this, this bad teaching, this bad theology. So we said the first couple of weeks, there's, there's a challenge for us in that as well. Know the heart. Know that we're quick to believe things that maybe we shouldn't. Know the scriptures well so we know what the gospel is and what it isn't so they don't kind of succumb and uh, fall victim to false teaching ourselves. We talked about community and the importance of Bible-centeredness and all kinds of stuff too in the early weeks. In the early weeks, and we'll continue to do that. But the false teaching was this. This is the most important thing. This is what the false teaching was. This is the occasion. This is why Paul's writing the way that he is, why he's so rep repetitious uh, on the same matter. Everything's at stake because the very nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the center of the faith, is being attacked. And it's not really clear. So the false teaching is this. It's the question, first of all, how does one stay in relationship with God after one trusts in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins? So after one believes in Jesus, after one looks to the cross and says, that's where God became a human and died for me in my place, and now I'm forgiven, now I'm free, now I'm saved and have the hope of eternal life. How does one after that stay in relationship with God? If that's the doorway, what's the path? And what's the final destination? Is it through good works? Is it through trying really hard to be good before God? Or is it through, to use a phrase right from Galatians and other, other places in the New Testament, 
Is it from the old Mosaic law or the law of Moses, the law that God gave Israel, like the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament? Is it through that as well? Or other types of laws that mediated Jews to God for a time before Christ came? Or is it through ongoing grace? Is it through continual clinging to Jesus every day of our lives? Paul, in the book here, God through Paul, is arguing it is the latter. And he's arguing this to Christians. That's that's a really important piece to understand contextually, too, that this is not written to uh, non-Christians. There are people that probably weren't Christians yet. They were hearing this letter read in their churches, and that's great. But this is written to the churches in Galatia, meaning gatherings of Christians in Galatia. And that's important because then, because of that, we can't say this is just about conversion. That the idea of being saved by our faith in God, our trust in Jesus Christ alone, is just about being saved, or just about converting from not being a Christian to Christianity. And then it has to do, then something else about our journey is kind of a different subject matter. We have to say, because it's written to Christians, that it's about the journey. It's about the path. Because people are already saved. They already believe the gospel. They've already chosen to, to follow this grace and and centralize it in their life, though they're entertaining false doctrine too. But they're Christians. So we have to say that it's not about conversion, it's rather about the whole of the Christian life. The whole of the Christian life is about grace. The whole of the Christian life is about faith, even over and against, to use the language here in this book, the law. And we'll define that a bit more throughout this if you're new to the Bible or this series, the law of the Old Testament, which includes moral, moral law. We believe, we, we enter the faith through Jesus, and we stay in the faith through ongoing grace and continually clinging to Jesus' blood for the sake of washing of our sins. Okay, so with that context, there's probably more to say, there always is, but with that context, let's dive in. Galatians 3, 15 to 22, he's basically, he's mid-argument, if you've not read this book, I encourage you to read chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 3, verse 14 to get a feel. I summarize most of it, but there's, there's more things he says there. Uh, or listen to our sermons online or website too to catch up if you would like. Um, but mid-argument here, he's going to bring up an example, a human example, to argue now for human, from human reason, which is interesting. At this point, it's been from his story and from the Old Testament. He's arguing for faith over and against law or works. But now he's going to use more of the Bible, but also a human example. So arguing from reason, like reasonably this is true, he's going to say. Or in our experience, we see this to be true as well. So... Let me read it in full to begin, and we'll come back and explain it after that. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance, or salvation, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Okay, so here's the, the issue in context here. Uh, he's arguing chronologically, as you can maybe see, with the mention of 430 years, and promise was first, and the law came a little bit later. We'll talk about that uh, in just a second. But the context here is to go back to the false teaching, what these, especially Jewish Christians, but these Gentile, non-Jewish Christians probably were starting to entertain uh, as these Jewish Christians were kind of falsely teaching these things, or falsely, at least ignorantly, if not with ill motive, infiltrating these churches and teaching these wrong things. It would have been easy for Christians to think, Jesus saves, then law or doing or works as a means to staying in relationship with God because of how the biblical storyline went chronologically. And so here's what I mean by way of timeline. This is basically the Old Testament right up to Jesus. Very crude, of course, and definitely not to scale. Uh, but creation occurs when, fall, when the fall happens, when men and women fall away, human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve, but all of us with them as we all held the hand of the devil and rejected God's kingly authority and rule over our lives and over all creation. Sin enters the world, then death after it. After that, God makes gracious, uh, strangely surprising promises to this man named Abraham and his wife and their kids and their posterity or their offspring. If you don't know the book of Genesis, most of the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, after sin comes into the world and all things are corrupted, is God making promise after promise after promise after promise to this family. And he says, through you, I'm going to redeem all things. Through you, I'm going to restore all things. I'm going to bring people back to me. Someone's going to come from your line who's going to undo this curse. You're going to make it back to Eden, but it's going to come through you and your offspring. So most of Genesis is stories about a family who are sinners but saved by grace, who constantly want to make it about works, but God corrects them and says, actually, it's about me making promises and me promising to do everything on my own power and by my, and by my will and my, my design and my strength and my might and my spirit, but not by you. But then people come back and believe that, but then they kind of go back to works. It's this, it's this kind of sick and almost perverse but beautiful cycle because God stays committed to his people. And then the rest of, the, the, rest of the, the Old Testament is built off of it, really, right up to Jesus. But what he says here is 430 years after Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, these times God is making these first promises of salvation to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to bless the world through your, through your offspring, save them. 430 years go by before God gives Israel the Ten Commandments or the moral law or other laws as well, sacrificial laws, uh, gives them to, to Israel through Moses. And then Jesus comes much later. So to go back to the, to the temptation in terms of what you know, would have been easy to think for Christians, because of the, the timeline here, because God makes promises first, then the law is given, it would have been easy for Christians to think that's our story as well. God gives us a promise. He makes good on his promise, and that's Jesus. He saves us from our sins because the ultimate fulfillment of the promises is Jesus. But then the question of how do we stay in relationship with God? Well, how did Israel? Israel uh, struggled underneath the law, and when they didn't keep it, they were condemned. But when they did, they were blessed, but they never really did. So they were just condemned. But because of the, the chronology there, it's a chronological uh, argument that the false argument would have been, see, the law was added. It was an addendum onto what God did beforehand. Promise first, then God adjusts it or changes the promise by adding law later. 
So Christians have the same story. This is the false argument, to be clear. This is what the whole book of Galatians is attacking and saying, not true. But you see how it would have been easy or tempting, especially for Jewish Christians, but also Gentile Christians listening to their arguments or just kind of wrongly reading the Old Testament. Promise or grace, but then adding on to that law. But Paul says then, to start out the passages, he says, by way of human example, he says, to give a human example, brothers, in verse 15, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. It's kind of like a a will uh, in today's standards. It's unchangeable even if circumstances change after it's been ratified. It's not a perfect illustration because wills can be changed, of course, but it's really hard to do. But what he's saying, it's kind of like that. Human covenants are really hard to change, like wills. With God, it's actually impossible. It's not because God's unchanging. But it'd be sort of like uh, Tim Keller in his commentary on this book used this illustration. He said, it's kind of like a father who has two kids. One is rich and one is poor. And for the sake of fairness in his will, he promises to give the poor child more money than the rich one. But right after the father dies, the, the rich child loses all of, all of his money and becomes actually poorer than the first one. In that scenario, the will can't be changed. It's ratified. It can't be adjusted. It's, it's impossible. Circumstances can't change in that situation. So it'd be kind of like that. Plus, as he goes on, this is even more important, he says in, in verse 18, if the inheritance or salvation comes by the law or what we do before God, it no longer comes by promise. There's a contrast. If someone promises us something, all we have to do is believe it, right? So think about it that way. If someone makes a promise to you, all you have to do is believe it's going to come. There's nothing you have to do. The only way to not receive the promise would be to probably just kind of laugh it off and just assume that they're not going to make good on their word or think it's silly or something like that. But it's, it's hard not to receive that promise. If we believe the promise is coming, that's it. There's nothing to do, right? By definition, this is a human reason-based argument here. This is how we talk about promises. It's not about what we do. If you're the recipient of a promise, you just kind of wait for it. But if someone promises us something, if only we first do something significant for them, then it's about law. And it's predicated on the fact that we obey first. It'd be like if I told my daughter, I promise I'm going to come see you at school for lunch this week. There's nothing she would have to do to receive that promise except wait for it. But if I would say, I'll come see you for lunch if you clean the house first, she would have to obey to secure that promise. And that would be law. It's different. So what he's saying here is, it's impossible for promise and law to coexist. Impossible. Not just biblically, but on a human reasoning basis as well. It's impossible. Promise and law are distinctly different. Adding condition to a promise, saying, I'll come see you for lunch if you first are good, or if you first clean the house, or if you first do this for me, instantly changes the promise into a law. This is what the Bible's saying. Instantly changes the promise into a law. And it's no longer a promise. If the inheritance comes by the law, then we we can't call it a promise anymore. Because by definition, it's not. Such is true in the biblical story then as well. To go back to this timeline, and I've highlighted a couple of things here for clarity. Promises, the Apostle Paul is saying here in this argument, promises were made to Abraham in the beginning by God 
430 years before the law came. A covenant was ratified. Promises were made. God said, I promise on my own volition, completely on me, I'll bear it. The burden of salvation, the burden of bringing to you an inheritance or or like a home with me again, to bring you back to Eden, to atone for your sins and overwhelm death. It's a promise-based thing. When, When God promises blessing, it's all on him. That happened 430 years before the law. Which if you think about it, and I think this is kind of in the white space of his argument, that's generations and generations of people, right, who lived during that 430 years. Does that strike anyone else? It's kind of a long time. Maybe a little bit arbitrary of a number, uh, but it's kind of a long time. It's lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes of people who lived, grew up, got jobs, had kids, got married, had kids, and and lived their lives and died, and, you know, um, and that's, that's it. And they didn't have the law. So I think kind of, you know, implicit in this argument is Paul saying to law-loving, law-clinging people, what did those poor people do during those 430 years for so long without the law? How'd they get by? And the answer is they were totally fine because they had God. They had the promise. They didn't have the law yet. So chronology is really important here. It's, it's, everything's based, the whole argument's based on this. The first covenant had to do with promise. The latter one, which we formally call now the Old Covenant or Old Testament that was based on law, came after. But it cannot change the one because just by human reason, it never does. But also theologically and by definition, law and promise are different. If God said to Abraham, I will bless you if you first do this for me, if that's their first interaction, If you don't know this, understand this about God's first interaction with Abraham, making promises to him. If he would have said, I promise this, but you have to first do this for me, if you first have to be good or obey me, then the entire biblical story would be different. The entire Bible would change. Our entire understanding of salvation would be completely flipped. There'd be no gospel or good news because there'd be no promise to follow through on. It'd be about law. It'd be about condition. It'd be about us. But, he says, and to your offspring, which is Christ. This is where it gets a little confusing, but when he says, when God made promises to Abraham and to his his offspring, not offsprings, plural, but the singular, to his offspring, he qualifies that and says that's actually referring to Jesus. And so meaning, in your mind, and as you read the Bible, and just today, draw a line from Abraham to Jesus. Draw a line from Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 when God's affirming that covenant and making promises to him and to the world through him. Draw a line from that to Jesus. Promise to the fulfillment of the promise. You know, Jesus is, is being whispered by God in the beginning. When God says, I promise to bless you, it's a whisper of Jesus. Though his name's not mentioned yet. But it's all about, it's what he's saying here, it's all about him. Jesus is in the line of promise, not law. It doesn't go through the Ten Commandments Though chronologically, you can see how people would think that. The promise and law are different. So the promise goes through, actually it kind of goes through David, if you know a bit about him, but that's probably more confusing to mention that today. So, but if you know that, it's kind of Abraham to David to Jesus. But for today, I think it's through and it's from Abraham all the way to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of those initial promises, not through law. Promise alone, apart from law, has to do with Christ. Not the promise plus the law. 
This is what he's saying. And the law which came later does not annul the promise which had nothing to do with law, nothing to do about our obedience, nothing to do about our response, except simply to believe that God will make good on his promises. Okay, so with all of that said, basically the first paragraph, though it kind of bleeds into the second too, and we'll look at this, is the, is the next question, and it just kind of begs, right? And, and I showed this already, but you may have been asking this throughout the series or at some point in your life, you may be wondering, if it's so much about faith over and against works, if it's so much about, about grace, so much about God doing everything and, and not at all about what we have to give him, then why did God give the law at all? Why then the law? Praise God. Let's get a rejoice in your heart for a minute to, th- to, to thank God this is in the Bible. You know, that this is a question that actually the Bible poses about itself. Not our question that we can ask this, but the Bible asks it about uh, itself. A natural question at this juncture, very natural, uh, because it's so much about grace. If the gospel was at all about law, then the Bible wouldn't ask this question because we'd have our answer already. We, we'd know that the law was added because it's partly by law that we're saved, right? The only reason this question is here is because it's not at all, 0% about our works, 0% about what we have to give. If it was 1% or 2% about our works, this question wouldn't be here because we'd already have our answer. It'd be silly to ask. The false teachers would, false teachers would have a point early on. Well, law was added, so we, we'd kind of know it's important to keep these things. But it's so much about grace, so much about Jesus, and so little about us and what we do that we have to wrestle now with this question. It's natural because it's all about faith and not works. So we're going to start to ask this question, or answer, ask and answer, this question today. We'll build on it next week. I think he gives the, the biggest biblical answer to this this week. Uh, next week he'll give another human example, an analogy that says kind of the same thing but from a different angle, and we'll, but we'll build on it. Uh, but just understand that we're addressing this in part today, uh, not, not in full, partly because the text is limited here, partly for time. But the biggest answer, I think, is given. The biggest biblical answer to this question, why then the law, is right here. And his answer is right there in verse um, 19. It was added because of transgressions or sin until the offspring should come, referring to Jesus, to whom the promise had been made. So, so between Abraham, or actually when Moses came to give the law, or God through, through Moses gave these commandments to Israel, until Jesus would come, they, they were given because of sins, is the answer. Which is still kind of enigmatic. It's like, oh, I'd like a little bit more, you know? It's a little, little strange and, and, uh, and odd. But, so this can be read two ways, though, and we'll um, explain the more clear one after. But on one level, this can be read as though it had like a civil purpose. For a time... Before Christ especially, uh, but it can have this purpose today as well, the law can, and that is to help restrain sin. So just think about society without laws at all. Things would be a lot more crazy, right? So on one level, it can do a little bit of sin restraining uh, type, of, type of stuff. But it's not really what it's saying here. Because of transgressions has more to do than, than civil purpose, and verse 22 makes that clear. The scripture or the Old Testament law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Or as Romans 5.20 says a bit more clearly, the law came in to increase sin, to make the problem worse, 
to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace, God's grace got stronger and it abounded all the more. In other words, the law makes us realize how sinful and bad we really are. And moreover, how to use uh, Galatians language, how imprisoning it is. That is to say that obviously the law is not freeing. It's not liberating. It was never meant to be. Seeing the commandment in the Old Testament, do not commit sexual sin on any level, or the command, love God with all your heart, exposes rather than frees. And it makes us yearn for another kind of liberator. Rabbi Zacharias, the uh, Christian apologist, uh, says this about this topic, not this text directly, um, although he probably does actually at some point, but this idea of the law and how it relates to the biblical storyline and to to grace, to Christ. He says, the law is like a mirror that shows us the dirt on our face. The law is like a mirror that shows us the dirt on our face. But then he says this, no one uses mirrors themselves to clean the dirt off right? Mirrors show us dirt on our face, but no one pulls the glass off the wall and rubs their cheek with with glass. No one does that. We go to something else altogether different, right? We go to a rag and soap. Jesus is like the rag and soap. We don't go to the law, in other words, to the mirror, to the sin-exposing thing, the dirt-exposing thing to save us or to ourselves. It can't do it. It'd be silly to do it, actually. Rather, we go to something altogether different, qualitatively different almost incomparable. Mirrors and rags and soap, it's not even comparable. In the same way, law and Jesus aren't even comparable. The one points to the latter, but they're not even really the same. It's like two random things in one sense. They're very different. Just like here, Paul is saying promise and law are opposites. They're different. You cannot blend them. The second we conditionalize promise, we make it into a law. Then he says in verse 21, this is a helpful argument too, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness or salvation would indeed be by the law. So what he's saying here is because the law can't give life, it's not contradictory. If the, if the Old Testament law could actually save a person, this would be contradictory. It w- it, it, we'd have a problem because God would be saying there's promises that can give life and there's laws that can give life, but because they're different, they would conflict. Well, which is it? Is it about God doing everything or us doing like half of it? Which is it? But he's saying here the law could never give life. Never. It never did for Israel. Ever. Not even once. This is beside the sin-restraining thing. This is talking about salvation, drawing close and staying close to God. It only brought condemnation. So again, if the law could give life, it would be contrary and contradictory because we'd have two different things promising life in two different ways. But here's the good news. We don't have that in the Bible. That's not how the story goes. The Old Testament doesn't say it. The New Testament doesn't say it. Jesus doesn't get weird with his teachings, making it confusing. He's very clear. He's different than the law. Paul's quite clear here. He's not blending the two in any way. Promise and law are completely different spheres. They don't overlap at all. 
We have a law that imprisons and only kills and a promise or a gospel that only gives life. And because of that then, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. It just serves a purpose, to get us to the promises. Not to, in a fake way, kind of offer life, you know, and, and to be a, a fake helper, to hold like a carrot, to saying, yeah, if, if you do this perfectly, which is a, a damning hypothetical. So in this sense, then, he's saying, in a lot of ways, the, the law is inferior. Uh, like the moon is inferior to the sun. Although the moon is a great light, it's just inferior. It reflects the light of the sun, but has no light itself. The sun is greater. Mirrors can't clean. They can only expose and make the problem more visible. It's a good thing, but it's very condemning. Goodness and condemnation can kind of go together if we understand the purpose, right? If something shows us, it's yelling at us that your house is on fire, get out, or showing us that we've got a huge smear of ketchup on our face before we go to public speak somewhere, like, oh, thank you, you know? But then we go to the rag, or whatever, right? I mean, it's, it can be good, but it's not, if it's, if it's ultimate, if it's the only thing, glass can't clean the face. If it's the only thing, uh, it is condemning. And the conditions wrapped up with, with that in the Old Testament, we'll look at one of those, kind of got at that. Or that, like that song we sang today, the abide, abide with me, when other helpers fail and comforts flee, uh, help me, abide with me. But you see how, how the, the response is, when, when other helpers, like the law, fail me, the response is to go to Christ, another helper, one who will truly abide with us and remain with us like, like that law never could. I also think a passing comment on verse uh, 18, sorry, uh, verse um, end of 19 about the angels. I think Paul's passing comment about the law being put in place through angels, it's a really cryptic verse that it's hard to interpret. Many people disagree on it. But I think part of what's going on at least is this comment about the law being put in place in the Old Testament through angels by an intermediary, which probably means Moses, implies inferiority as well as it focuses on man's and angel's work. But in the New Testament, the gospel is put in place by God himself, by the work of his son, Jesus. Jesus, who is greater than the angels. And so that is to say, as Hebrews, another book in the New Testament says, the New Testament is better than the Old Testament. It's a better promise, based on better promises, it's a better covenant than the Old. And so for most of the rest of our time, guys, I want to teach through this a little bit more. Um, we wanted to at some juncture in the series, do this, and this, it fit really well this week. And so um, what I want to do is look at an example of a commandment linked with condition, a condition in the Old Testament, and then talk about this question, how do Christians engage, how should we, if you're a Christian in the room, any of you, Christian or not, in the room, how should we engage with this kind of text? The text I'm going to pull out is Deuteronomy 5.18. It's one of the Ten Commandments when God says through Moses to Israel, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not have sex with someone that's besides your, your spouse. Fornication can be lumped in here as well. The response, actually, it's interesting. In, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, so God gives the Ten Commandments twice because uh, the, the tablets are smashed in anger in, in Exodus 20 or, or beyond, and so God gives them again in writing to kind of um, lump it back on them. But the, the response in both narratives, I encourage you guys to go, go and read this. In Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, is not rejoicing, 
when they get the law. It's not happiness. It's not, this is what I've been missing in my life. It's outright fear and trepidation. In fact, they say, I can't listen to God's voice anymore. This is too much. Moses, go for us. Tell him to stop talking. Tell God to stop talking is the response to the law. I can't listen anymore. I can't bear it. Did you know that was there? Is that the way you think of it? Your response? We tend to kind of pull out some of the good sometimes. We pluck it out like a cherry. But the rest of the tree is sitting there of like all this conditionality and fear. There's this mountain. If animals touched it, they would just die. There's this great cloud and God's voice was so loud like this too loud trumpet that couldn't really be listened to. It was not a good time. And so you have fear. And then these conditions come, which you could put all this almost in different order, but um, these conditions come. Deuteronomy 5 says, You, Israel, shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded. You shall not turn to the right or the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord has commanded you, that you may live and not die and that it may go well with you. And if that's not enough, Deuteronomy 27 and 28 are basically chapters worth of conditionality, saying if you don't keep the law perfectly, you'll be exiled from my presence. And that's what happens to Israel, because they can't, they never can. So this is the example. Let's take Deuteronomy 5.18, say we're reading this in context, but even just reading Deuteronomy 5.18, but I want to give a little bit of context there for some things I'll mention later, especially to see the condition associated with the law, which is an Old Testament thing, not a New Testament thing. So we come across that, though, Deuteronomy 5.18. Uh, there's a couple of things we think is, uh, we should think as Christians. I have seven things I actually go through kind of quickly. There's probably more, but just uh, in, in a nutshell. On one level, when you come across that command, you shall not commit adultery, on one level, this can kind of help restrain sin. You know, life is usually better when we're not all the time committing adultery. You know, and that's what God knows this. And sometimes we just don't. We, we think it's going to actually satisfy us. And so we, we pursue it on whatever level in the body or, or the heart. And it tells us something of the heart of God as well. Uh, God's heart for marriage. God has a plan for heterosexual monogamous marriage. He desires deeply that men treat women respectfully and gently and honorably and that husbands have eyes alone for their wives and he cares about that stuff because uh, this stuff tells a story about his singular love for us when God calls himself like a husband he desires deeply that physical earthly husbands resemble his husband-like love for his bride the church on another level though, so it kind of restrains a little bit but not really On another level, though, as we've been talking about, though Christians affirm it's good not to commit adultery, this law imprisons us, as Galatians 3 says. It it exposes like a mirror how we've already broken it, at least in our heart, if not our bodies. How men have devalued and abused women, how men and women have lusted after things selfishly. And so it leads to fear and not rejoicing, like it did for Israel. It led to fear and not rejoicing. So that happens as well. And maybe we, we kind of fast forward ahead here to some of Jesus' teachings. Remember how Jesus addresses this, this particular command in one of his sermons? How he raises the bar to show even more that the law cannot be kept. When he says, you've heard it said, 
you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said that. You heard Moses say that to you. But I say to you, Jesus says, don't even look upon a woman with lustful intent. For then you have committed adultery with her in your heart. And here's the key. You're just as liable to the fires of hell. You're just as liable to the fires of hell. And so even there's some kind of qualitative difference, of course, between actually having an affair and in our mind having an affair in terms of consequence, in terms of liability before God. Uh, it's, it's the same. This is what Jesus is teaching uh, himself. So what Jesus does here in this sermon with these kinds of things, and he has more of these in Matthew 5 to 7, he stokes the fire of law imprisonment. He stokes the fire when he teaches because it's like the fire of what the law was supposed to do in condemning people to drive them to God was died down low like, like coals. And what Jesus does is, is blows the fan on it and, and flames it up into a big fire again and stokes the fire and says, you have thought it was this, it was just about the body? You see, he's raising the bar to show that all the more it can't be kept. So for, for law keepers and checklist checkers who are doing pretty well physically, you know, in the heart, 50,000 times in their life, they've committed adultery. All of a sudden, they've gone from a perfect law keeper to like the worst guy in the room. That's a really good spot. It's like the mirror. Good, but condemning. Jesus is taking on a law-like, before he dies on the cross, a law-like role here in being like it to, to expose what's wrong and to drive people to something else other than the mirror something else other than the law, something else other than themselves, and that is to him. This is why at the end of, of that sermon, he says, uh, he, he actually raises the bar higher and says, be perfect. In case you missed the message, uh, and in case you actually think you're doing all this stuff, be perfect as your heavenly father is, is perfect. You know, and, so, and then he kind of goes on and teaches and walks to Jerusalem eventually, asking people to follow him. I saw today Keller, uh, Tim Keller tweeted, if, if Jesus says, follow me, he must be the goal. Right? If Jesus says, follow me, he must be the goal. Not, not, not his moralistic teachings. Him. Following him. Well, where's he going? Where's Jesus going in his ministry? To Jerusalem. And what's he going to do there? He's going to die. And then What? He's going to be raised. That's what he wants people to follow him unto. Carry your cross, he says. Come die with me and be remade new. See, it's a crucifixion-centered message when he says, follow me. A resurrection-centered image when he says, follow me, not a moralistic one. And so we remember how Jesus does this, and then the question is, where do you go? At that point, where do you go? And I kind of got at this already. But then we remember, as we're working through this passage or passages like it, we remember the promise that it's different than law. We're not under that command anymore. And we run to the liberator who is, this is a quote from Romans 3, Jesus is apart from law because he's, he's the promise and they're different. He's the fulfillment of God's promises. He's not giving righteousness based on the law, but based on what he has to give us through his blood. And so we remember the promise. You know, it's, he's the one, when you look at the cross, and I'll just I'll point back to this. You could put any, any problem or curse or sin up there with Deuteronomy 5, but we're looking at this one. Jesus on the cross really is the one who bled for our adulterous sins. 
He's not a martyr in the strictest sense of the word. He wanted to die. He went there willingly and obediently, even though he wasn't an adulterer, to kind of become an adulterer for us on the cross. He loved us to death and back. And when he died, he didn't die to give you and I a clean slate so that we might go off and just try to be good after that clean slate's given. It's a common misunderstanding of what's happening on the cross, even in the church. Nor did he die just to help us to keep the law. None of these things are viable arguments based on Galatians 3 because they're different. Promise and law are different, so we can't go back and say, that's how we stay in. It's promise or law. It's kind of like Paul saying, there's two platters. You have a choice. Which dinner are you going to partake of? Law or Jesus? It's not, it's not both. You can't. Which one is it? So Paul's argument, this is really important, is not give us a clean slate or Jesus gives us a clean slate or helps us keep the law, but rather he replaces the law as the way that we're mediated to God. Not just when we're converted, but every single day of our life. This is the argument of Galatians 3. This is what God is saying to us. Law and promise are different. Law accentuates our need, but it does not annul or change the promise because it's better. You know, which is better? A sign on a boat that says, flotation device located here under this seat, or a loving father diving into the ocean to save his drowning child. Which is better? It's almost not comparable, right? That's the point. Law and promise aren't comparable. It's almost like total apples to oranges, but if you're going to give me a choice, I guess I'll take the father. That's what you should be thinking. It's way better, right? Thank you for the notes about the flotation device. Thank you, law, for exposing something, for telling me something, for being a word. But the gospel isn't about that. It's actually about a God who dove into the ocean to save us, even against our will, against our inability to, to swim. Not comparable. There's more power in it, too. And this goes to the last thing I want to mention with seven. So as we're thinking about Deuteronomy and, and this idea of adultery, there's more power in it because Jesus doesn't just restrain sin. He destroys it. See how much better that is? To those of you who have sinned before, all of you, me, in the room, the law can maybe restrain it a little bit, but restraining is not nearly as good as destroying. Right? So which do we want? Do we want a little bit of help restraining sometimes or destruction of our worst nightmares? Destruction of our addictions, destruction of our shame, destruction of our guilt. And that's where life change comes from. As we embrace Christ, this is the seventh thing, as we embrace Christ and his forgiveness, then we heed the New Testament command to abstain from sexual sin. Not because we have to, but because we're freed to. New Testament ethical exhortations are one, not law, because there's no condition attached to them, as there always is in the Old Testament. There's no condition. And two, it's not central to the faith because it's not promise. There's no promise attached to abstain from sexual sin. It's a good thing. And Christians, with the help of Christ, the, 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 the replacing of our, our addiction, the replacing of our lust with a more beautiful image and a new life that Christ gives us with his resurrection that, that's the promise, but the ability to keep that is uh, not central. The gospel is central. 
And so we heed it because we can now. We're free to and because Christ helps. So that's a little bit of a walkthrough into how to address that kind of command, how Christians should read it. Not as though we're under it like Israel was, but we Christianize it. We see how Jesus talked about it. We see how Paul talks about the law. We use the New Testament to read the Old. That's the first concluding point here. Uh, Where do we go? One, this should affect how we read the Bible. It's a very helpful passage, actually, and I know this is really complicated. Don't feel bad if a lot of that went over your head if you're new to the Bible, because it is complicated. It's really complicated. But there's a lot in here in terms of timeline, chronology, Abraham and how Abraham and promise connect to Jesus, how to read the law. There's There's a few boxes here we can at least check off for the sake of our understanding and our, the sake of our reading the Bible so that if you've got like a Bible reading plan or something, you're not randomly turning to some passage and viewing it all in the same light. Because you're, you're no longer under Deuteronomy 5.15. If you come to do not commit adultery, that's not a law for you anymore if you're in Christ. I mean, outside of Christ is a different story. The law is still over and weighing heavy on you, but Christ, Christ seeks to be your liberator away from the law. He frees you away from the prison of being under, under it. So we talked a lot about that today. I won't talk more about that. But one, a, fi- a few final words in the second piece. This should affect how we view the gospel. When you look at the cross, if you think, and it's very easy to do, I do it way more than you probably think. Uh, but we all do. When you look at the cross, if you think, I need to be good to pay God back for that, Or if you think the cross is the starting blocks, but my race is keeping the Ten Commandments as best I can like Israel before me. If you're thinking that or things like that, I have really good news for you. Really good news. And that is, the gospel is much better than that. What I just said there about those thoughts, that's an impotent gospel. There's no power in it. Jesus didn't bleed on a cross so you could think that. So we could think that. He invites us away from that. So we might see promise as sufficient and not lump on law like an ugly wart on our backs, on the back of the promise. He says the promise is only given to those who, what? Believe. Believe. Saying this to Christians, not to almost converts, to be clear. To Christians, this is a message for you today. Are you believing the gospel today? The promise is for you today if you're believing today that Jesus died for your sins. It's amazing news for for sinners like us. If that's not terribly good news to you, it's possible you have too high a view of yourself. And that when you look at the Ten Commandments, you actually think they're keepable. But for those of you who are steeped in sexual sin, up to your eyeballs, who maybe spent hours looking at porn this morning, and who have helped encourage sex trafficking because of it, maybe even on the way here, who are currently having an affair, emotionally or physically. Those of you with with all forms of sexual perversions and know your sin, if you know your sin, here's the good news. The answer to that problem for you is not, and in any way, do not commit adultery. That's not the answer. The thing you should look at and think about is not the commandment. The answer for you is not, do not commit adultery and the associated condition. That's what Galatians 3 is saying. Why would you go back? Why is Jesus just the door? And now that's the law. That's the thing you have to think about when you're stuck in sin. 
when people come to me, and I, I know this as a sinner, but also a pastor who counsels people with any different kinds of sin, you know, chances are you, you know the law can't save you. You've tried. When people come to me, and it's like, well, if my counsel is just stop it, stop sinning, try harder, like, thanks, Chris, you know. Yeah, tried that. That's why I'm here. Like, point me to Jesus. Whether they're saying that or I see it in their eyes. Point me to something else. You know, that do not, the stop it command isn't working. It never, ever did, ever. You know, so, so be encouraged by that in the sense that there is something else. Only Jesus has the power to forgive you and me, to cleanse us, to take away our guilt and shame, and to replace our addictions with a newfound grace and love. God's response to your sexual sin and mine is him. God's response to your sin is, is that. It's not the commandment. It's the promise. Do you believe that? That's how Galatians 3 preaches. Do you believe that? Do we believe that today? Regardless of if you believe it or not yesterday. What about right now? Do you believe that he loves you that much? Breathe in the free air. You and I are okay now with God because of that. That's the gospel. Some of you are choosing not to believe that right now. Some of you are believing that actively. Some of you are considering that. This is, this is, the, this is the crux every day. This is the crux. People reject that or they believe it or they receive it. It's one or the other. Jesus loves you unto death and back. He died for, for the worst of things you've ever done. Died for your shame and your guilt. And all he asks to receive the promise of blessing is to believe. Believe that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, and it's to your, to your benefit. You are okay with God because of what he did for you right there, if you believe. For the promise is given to those who believe. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage so full of grace condemnation in the sense that it points us to the law and its true purpose, which was to be a mirror, but then to what actually saves, which is only Jesus. The Bible says, as your word says, God, in Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven by which people can be saved, the name of Jesus Christ. There's not multiple ways to you, there's one way, and that is God sending his son into the world to become human like us, to wear our sin like a robe on the cross, to absorb it to take the punishment and the debt, to wear it like a yoke, and to free us from our sin because he's, he's a substitute. And so help us to God to look at the cross in a fresh light maybe today for a lot of us, for the first time maybe for some. Uh, help us to believe the gospel. It, it's, it's good and true and beautiful, unlike the law which simply condemns and shows us how bad we are. Uh, God, your love is bigger. Grace is bigger than sin, Romans 5 said. Sin increases with the law, but grace abounds all the more. You are stronger than what we've done. You're stronger than our old identities. You're stronger than our sin. Praise be to God. In Christ's name.